Currently in our kitchen sits a toaster oven. A toaster oven in which the knob on it that tells you how long you want to toast something or set it in there to cook or bake is not functioning properly. And so because of such, it is something of a fire hazard because it can stay on continuously. And so we have been unplugging it. Well, not long ago, I was wanting to toast some bread, and so I put this toast in the toaster oven and turned the knob and waited several minutes and came back and opened it up and touched my toast, and it was still soft. Until I looked up at the wall and realized, what? The toaster oven was not plugged in. Kind of a crass story, a crass illustration, but I think it illustrates something of what Jesus is communicating in John chapter 15. You need to be plugged in. You need to be plugged into him. You need to be plugged into him as the vine in order to receive the power and nourishment to be able to bear fruit, to produce toast. You need to be plugged in. This section of Jesus' teaching is, uh, we're tempted to think of it as a parable, but it really doesn't fit a parable, does it? Because normally parables have like a story, a narrative to it. This doesn't have a story. It's, it's more like an extended metaphor that Jesus gives here. It's, it's very much like John chapter 10 with the good shepherd discourse. It's not really a story involved. It's a metaphor that Jesus teases out Uh, to explain very important truths for us to believe. And this teaching comes in the context of John chapter 13 through 17, which is commonly called the upper room discourse or the upper room teaching. This is a lengthy teaching which Jesus is giving to his disciples on the evening before his execution. The other gospels don't record this lengthy teaching. They primarily record that last supper But here in the Gospel of John, he gives us a window into what took place on the evening before Jesus' execution. And this is really within the Gospel of John. This is Jesus, according to John 1.11, he came unto his own and his own did not receive him. And that's really John chapters 1 through 12. But to all who received him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the power to become children of God children born not of natural descent. And so this this last section in the Gospel of John, John chapter 13, really to the end, Jesus focuses on his own, those who have believed in him. And we have observed some very important instruction that Jesus gives concerning the Holy Spirit and, and how he's going to depart from them, but he's not going to leave them without orphans. But now here in this section... Jesus, as he's about to leave, he gives them very important instructions about who he is and what they must do. And namely, the dominant idea of what they are supposed to do in his absence from them with the power of the Holy Spirit that he's just explained in chapter 14 is to abide in Jesus, to abide in him, to be plugged in to Jesus. The word abide is a word that is repeated throughout this section. I think it occurs 10 or 11 times in this section in John chapter 15. It's something that's repeated over and over to abide, abide in Jesus, abide in the vine. It's a word that has been used already in the Gospel of John. It's actually kind of interesting because it was used in John chapter 14 in verse 2 in its noun form, in my Father's house, are many abidings or many dwelling places. And then we also saw last time in verse 23, it's used again. Jesus answered and said to them, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come and make our abiding with him. So it's been used in this context to speak of Jesus preparing a home for his his own in heaven. It's been used of the Holy Spirit and the Father and the Son coming to Jesus' own people and abiding with them, dwelling in them. 
And now it's used in John chapter 15 of us dwelling with Jesus or us abiding with Jesus. So then the obvious question is, what does it mean to abide? Well, even as we are able to gather, it means to dwell. Uh, it's, it means to remain. It means to continue. Um, it's a constant, it's the idea of constantly remaining within something. One person has defined it as, to, as Jesus saying, to stick fast to me, to live the close to live in close and intimate communion with me, to get nearer and nearer to me, to roll every burden on me, to cast your whole weight on me, never to let go or, or, or let go of your hold on me for a moment, to be as it were rooted and planted in me. Do this and I will never fail you. I will ever abide in you. So this is the idea, to be plugged into Jesus, to continue with Jesus. And again, this is important because the context, Jesus is leaving them. The, the, the entire world of the disciples is about to be upheaved as their master, their Lord, their champion is going to die on the cross. And Jesus is saying, stick with me. Continue with me. Don't depart. So this morning we're going to look at Four very important reasons why you should abide in Jesus. You should abide in Jesus as the vine. First of all, because the vine empowers. The vine empowers. Notice what Jesus says here. I am the true vine. I am the true vine. Now, for most of us who are New Testament Christians, um, who... The white, the, the, the first two-thirds of our Bible has pages stuck together and very crispy and white. And the last one-third of our Bibles have mostly, uh, you know, have, have, you know, the pages are frailed and, and crinkled and there's writing in them. It's hard for us to appreciate this, but if you were to go back to the context in which Jesus originally said this, in the context in which the disciples are learning from their master, in which they would have been immersed in the Old Testament, Jesus' statement, I am the vine, would have had a lot more um, significance. Because throughout the Old Testament, it is often Israel that is referred to as the vine. In fact, I remember some years ago when my wife and I were traveling through San Diego and we, our San Diego area, Orange County in Southern California, and we visited a church. And this church uh, happened to be renting out a synagogue, uh, because evidently Jewish people don't meet on Sunday mornings. Um, they're good Sabbatarians, meet on the Sabbath, Saturday. And, uh, and so they rented out the synagogue on Sunday mornings. And I remember sitting there, and it was fascinating, just the arrangement of the synagogue. I had never been in a synagogue before. And all the seats were in circular fashion. And I remember looking up and seeing running across the entire wall all the way around was a vine. A vine. And I thought, wow, very interesting. Very interesting. It's not just contemporary Jewish people who see Israel as a vine. It's shot through the scriptures. Listen to Psalm 80, verses 8 through 11. God speaks of Israel. He says, you brought a vine out of Egypt. I'm sorry, the psalmist speaks of God and what he did to Israel. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and it filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. So the psalmist in Psalm 80 is speaking of Israel, the Hebrews, as a vine that God took out of Egypt and planted in the promised land. But not only is the Israel often referred to as a vine, it's often even referred to as a vineyard. I remember in kindergarten Hebrew when I was in seminary, they don't call it kindergarten Hebrew, they call it beginning Hebrew, but that's what it is, you know. It's kindergarten Hebrew, you're like, trying to read. 
still in kindergarten Hebrew, by the way. And we had to translate Isaiah chapter 5. And fascinating chapter where God likens Israel to a vineyard. It says, let me sing now for my well-beloved. It's a song of the vineyard. Isaiah says, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around. He removed its stones and he planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it. He hewed out a wine vat in it. He expected it to produce good grapes. So again, here Israel is likened to a vineyard, a vineyard in which God himself had, had taken all the stones out. He had, he had tilled up the, the, the soil. He had built a hedge around it. He even built a watchtower for somebody to scare off the animals and any intruders. He built a wine vat so that when it produced grapes, they could stomp on the grapes and it would produce wine. God was looking for some good fruit. But it says in verse 2, but it produced only worthless ones. And then the prophet starts with his indictment. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than I have not done? Why then I expected it to produce good grapes Did it produce worthless ones? And so, so often throughout the history of Israel, Israel is referred to as a vine, a vine in which God is is cultivating, a vine in which God has set up everything in order for it to produce fruit. And it wasn't producing fruit. And so, again, this is now shocking here. So that when Jesus stands before these Hebrew men and declares to them, I am the vine and you are the branches, they would have had this entire background in their thinking. So what's the significance? Well, D.A. Carson, I think, is helpful at this point. He says, as the paradigmatic vine, say that three times out loud, paradigmatic, the paradigmatic vine, the theme of the vine, how about that? We'll translate D.A. Carson for you. The theme of the vine, Jesus embodies God's true intentions for Israel. Jesus is the channel through whom God's blessings flow. Just as Jesus is the new temple and the fulfillment of the Jewish festival symbolism, so he also is the new Israel, the true vine. Hence, Jesus displays Israel as the focus of God's plan of salvation I'm sorry, hence Jesus displaces Israel as the focus of God's plan of salvation with the implication that faith in Jesus becomes the decisive characteristic for membership of God's people. This is a big deal. So if you were in the ancient world, if you were a Gentile, Goyim, a non-Jewish person in the ancient Israel, and you said, I want to believe in Yahweh, God of Israel, they, they would have said things like, well... If you're a man, you need to be circumcised. Ouch. You also need to um, start coming to the, the holidays, the Passover. You need to begin to come to temple and offer sacrifices at the temple. You need to, be, to involve yourself in all the ritual and ceremony. And so these would have been the things that you would have been, in a sense, trusting in in ancient Judaism. You would have begun to integrate yourself into all these pictures and symbols, which actually God had given for thousands of years. And so what we're seeing when Jesus says, I am the true vine, Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of all those pictures and symbols. I am the reality so that you no longer trust in those pictures and symbols. I am the substance. In fact, this this, uh, adjective in front of vine, I am the true vine, it has that meaning several times throughout the Gospel of John. In John 1.9, it says that there was a true light. That's the same word as true, true in front of true vine. A true light which is coming into the world which enlightens every man. It's used later on in 6.32 when Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you bread out of heaven, but it is the Father who gives you true bread out of heaven. 
So in those instances of, of the word true, true is speaking of that which is the perfection of the reality. And so, again, think of this in the context of John's gospel. The Israelites, even at this point, are celebrating a Passover meal, right? And we see in the gospel of John, John 1.29, what does John the Baptist say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or even later on in John chapter 19, where John records, they didn't break any of Jesus' bones. Why not? This was to fulfill what was said in the scriptures, that none of the bones shall be broken. What bones? The Passover lamb's bones. In other words, the Passover feast was a shadow, but Jesus is the true one. We see the same thing with the temple, right? Jesus said, flatten this temple and I will raise it up in three days. But Jesus wasn't talking about the brick and mortar, was he? He was talking about the temple of his body. We see this also with the Exodus. We see this uh, even when Jesus is, is walking on the water uh, in John chapter 6, and he says, do not fear, I am. Well, this is a statement from, a, a quotation from Isaiah that points back to the Exodus from Egypt where God brought the people through the water. We, we, we also see it with physical birth versus spiritual birth. It was so important to be of physical lineage in Israel. But that's even how the gospel starts out, that yet to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of what? Natural descent. This is what he says to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, you might have been born a Jew, but you must be what? Born again. We see it also with the manna. We saw it, and I mentioned it already in John chapter 6. The true bread that came down from heaven. This is why Jesus says in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life, right? Because Jesus is the reality that that manna pointed to. Jesus is the one who meets man in his greatest need. We see it even with the glory cloud, which would have been the, the cloud of fire by night and smoke by day. And it's in John chapter 8 and verse 12 where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows after me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. We see it even with Jesus' statement, I am the good shepherd. Israel had had many shepherds. Have you read First and Second Kings lately? Many shepherd kings, which the idea of an ancient shepherd, an ancient king was almost always referred to as a shepherd. Israel had many kings, but Jesus is saying, I am that good king, that good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. So again, when, when, when Jesus says, I am the true vine, which for, for, for millennium Israel had been the vine, Jesus is saying, don't trust in the ceremonies, the rituals, the system, all that involved, was involved with, with, with Israel. Trust in me, abide in me. If you want real life, this is where it's at. And so now he's telling these 11 disciples who are remaining, I'm going to depart, but you need to press into me. You need to be plugged into me. Arthur W. Pink says, this is met by an announcement, I am the vine and ye are the branches. It is not a question of your, it is not a question of your sufficiency. Yea, let your insufficiency be admitted. As settled once for all, in yourself you are no better than a branch severed from a dry, a vine dry and dead. You need to be plugged into the vine. You need to be plugged into the vine for life, for the power of spiritual life so that you would bear fruit, so that you would bear fruit to become more like Jesus. 
You cannot trust in any other false vine. You cannot trust in even the rituals of the new covenant. Baptism, the Lord's Supper, things like church membership, as important as each of those things are, you need to be plugged into the vine. And even in order for those symbols to have any significance. Any kind of power for change and growth in the Christian life, if you're not abiding in Jesus, if you're not plugged into Jesus, you will produce no real fruit-bearing change. He is the one to abide, to trust in. But not only do we have the vine that empowers, we have the Father that purges. Notice what he says after he says, I am the true vine, my Father is the vine dresser. Now we all know what a vine dresser is, right? <laughs> this is the idea of a farmer. This is, the, this is the vineyard worker. This is the one who's involved in cultivating the vine. This is the one who's involved with the, the, the purging of the dead branches off of the vine and also the pruning of those branches that do have life. And, and again, with the metaphor that Jesus gives here, it's not new. God himself was the vine dresser all throughout the Old Testament. I read to you Isaiah 5. He was the one who tilled the soil. He was the one who built the wall. And even for new covenant believers, it's the same. The father is the farmer, the vine dresser. And in this instance, in verse 2, it says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. I think the same thing is being alluded to later on in the section in verse 6 when it says, if anyone does not abide in me, these would be those dead branches, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. First of all, a little bit of information about ancient viticulture. That's a great word, viticulture. Ancient vineyard stuff. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> Craig Keener, he's always helpful in New Testament background stuff. He says this, gardeners pruned away useless branches lest they, lest they divert the vine's strength from fruitful branches. The weaker the vine, the more harshly they pruned it, reducing short-term fruit but ensuring a greater measure of fruit the following year. Farmers pruned in two different ways. They pruned fruitful branches to make them more fruitful, and they removed unfruitful branches entirely. Here's another of John's play on words here. The term, use, the term he uses for prunes normally means cleanses, reflecting a motif in John. Both Greek and Jewish sources applied related language to inward purification of the heart. So what this commentator is explaining is that in the ancient world, as with Jesus' metaphor, the farmer, the vineyard worker, he did two things related to the vine. He took those, those, those parts of the vine that were producing fruit, he pruned them, clipped the sucklings and different things off of them that might have been detracting uh, from them producing fruit. But he also took the dead ones away as well. And this is what we see here. It says the father purges. The, the father takes away the dead branches. Now notice Jesus' language here. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit. Now, I think it's, it's worth trying to define what the fruit is here that he's talking about. Well, it seems that within this context, fruit, according to J.C. Ryle, means repentance towards God, faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ, holiness of life and conduct, 
These are what the New Testament calls fruit. These are the distinguishing marks of a man who is a living branch of the true vine. Where these things are lacking, it is vain to talk of possessing dormant grace and spiritual life. Where there is no fruit, there is no life. So when he's talking about the fruit here, he's talking about those things that are produced in the Christian's life. Things like repentance, things like the fruit of the Spirit, of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, a love for Jesus, a concern about sin. So that when Jesus says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit... These are branches that do not produce those evidences of the Christian life. But notice what Jesus says about them. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit. Now, I think there's there's two two, uh, sides of the horse we can fall off on here. We don't want to be like the drunk guy trying to get on a horse who keeps falling one side to the other, okay? I think that was a Luther joke. The two sides of the horse we don't want to fall off on, the, the, the kind of Arminian interpretation that teaches that, well, these, these are genuine Christians who lost their salvation. They're connected to Jesus, but Jesus, uh, you know, says, get, get away from me. We know that's not true because the rest of the gospel, John, right? Uh, how about John 637? All that the Father gives me will come to me, and everyone who comes to me, I will never drive away, or I will never cast out. Those who come to Jesus, according to John chapter 10, Jesus says, I hold my sheep in my hand. My Father is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. And then I think there's an, uh, another heir on the other side of the horse that would say, well, these are, you know, these are just, um, they're carnal Christians here. These are Christians who, who never produce fruit, okay? But according to the New Testament, there actually isn't such a Christian. Christians who don't produce fruit aren't Christians. And so we don't, we don't want to fall on either of those sides of the horse so I think what we have here, and I, and I think it'll be helpful if we think of it within the context, those who are branches that do not produce fruit, that Jesus says are in me, these are branches that are in close proximity to Jesus, but do not produce fruit. Can we think of anybody out of the 12 who might have been one of these branches? One who just at this same dinner left to go and betray Jesus. Fill in the blank. Begins J.I. Judas Iscariot, right? He would have been one of those branches that was dead. That even though he had been with Jesus and the disciples for three and a half years, even though he had heard the same teachings that each of the other 11 had heard, even though he had perhaps even been there involved in the miracles and the casting out of demons and all that was involved with those original disciples of Jesus. He was dead in trespasses and sins. He did not produce any genuine fruit. And he was cut off and taken away. And according to verse 6, these branches are taken away and they're thrown into the fire They go to hell forever. This is very sobering, my friends. That the Father purges those who are close to the vine, but not actually connected to the vine, who do not produce fruit. These are the ones who John records in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 19. They went out from us because they were not of us. Had they been of us, they would have remained with us. But their going out showed that they were not all of us. They were with us, right? They were in the vine in that sense. 
But their departure demonstrated that they were not of us. They were not actually connected and plugged in with Jesus. This is actually a fairly common theme in Jesus' teaching, is it not? Jesus gives the parable of the ten virgins. Ten virgins. Five who are wise and five who are foolish. But outwardly, they would have looked all the same, right? Their, their virginity highlights their outward moral purity. But yet only five of them were prepared when the groom came back. We see this with the parable of the sheep and the goats. We see this with the parable of the soils. The the sower goes out to sow seed and, and some falls upon the pathway. And it never produces fruit. The bird, Satan, comes and gobbles it up. Some falls in the rocky soil, the very thin-layered soil, and, and, it, and it looks promising, but the sun comes up and scorches it, and what? It does not produce fruit. And then there's the thorny soil, the seed that's thrown amongst the thorns. This, this again, seems to show some promise, but the weeds come and choke it out, and it never produces fruit. But then there is the one soil that produces 30, 60, 100-fold fruit. But it would appear in that parable that two of the different kinds of soils, the rocky soil and the thorny soil, seem to be close, but they don't produce fruit. We see this with that perhaps the most sobering statement that Jesus ever utters at the end of that Sermon on the Mount when he says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many wondrous works? But on that day, Jesus says, I will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. In other words, they they were close to the vine, but they perished without ever actually being connected to the vine. And it was only on the day of judgment that Jesus sorted it out. And so, friends, if you're sitting here this morning and you do a little fruit inspection on your own life and you see there's... There's no fruit of repentance. There's no love for Jesus. There's no love, joy, peace, patience. There's no hunger for the word. There's never been. But you're obviously here this morning. It would appear to me on the basis of John chapter 15, you're a dead branch. And dead branches are headed for the fire. And there may be a temptation for you to think, well, let me just try to staple some fruit onto my life. But that's not what Jesus says. His his directive throughout this section is what? Abide in the vine. Go to Jesus. Turn to him. Turn to this one who is the source of life. Turn to this one who this very next morning would be suspended between heaven and earth, bearing in his body the full weight of God the Father's judgment upon him, dying on behalf of sinners. Turn to him, this one who himself rose from the dead. Turn to him, my friend. He will not shoo you away. He will not despise you. All that the Father gives me, Jesus says, will come to me, and everyone who comes to me, I will not drive away. He is a kind Savior. You may have been putting up the front for years now. This morning, you can get honest with God. You can get honest with Jesus and latch on to the vine. And as you do that, you will begin to see, wow, I think I do see some budding fruit in my life. Fruit that's only possible by being connected to the vine. So, my friend, get plugged into Jesus. 
get plugged into Jesus, abide in the vine because the vine is what empowers. Secondly, the Father purges. You don't want to be one of those who the Father purges from the vine. But third, the Father prunes. Notice what he says here in verse 2. Not only does he take away every branch that does not bear fruit. Notice what it says about those branches that do bear fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he, the vine dresser, the father, prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. I love this. He prunes it. He prunes it so that it would bear more fruit. In other words, the Father sees those living branches, those living branches that just have tiny little grapes on them, baby grapes. And he doesn't despise those baby grapes, but he looks at it and says, I want bigger grapes. He sees only but two or three little grapes. He says, I want more grapes. And so he takes out his knife and he starts cutting off parts of that branch. And if you were that branch, you would say, ow, it hurts. It doesn't feel good. It's painful. And even one who's looking on, who, who knows very little about viticulture, might look and say, hey, you're a big meanie. You're going you're gonna to kill that branch. And the father would just turn and smile and say, I, I think I've done this before. I know how to bring forth fruit. Pruning was an essential part of first century viticultural practice as it is today. The first pruning occurring in the spring when vines were in their flowering stage, this involved four operations. First, the removal of growing tips of vigorous shoots so that they would not grow too rapidly. The cutting off of one or two feet from the end of growing shoots to prevent entire shoots from being snapped off by the wind. The removing of flower or grape clusters so that those left would produce more and better quality fruit. The remover of suckers that arose from below the ground or from the trunk in the main branches so that the strength of the vine was not tapped by the suckers. In other words, in each of these instances, for an ignorant onlooker, you would be looking at and saying, He's going to kill the vine. <laughs> but the vine dresser knows what he's doing. And certainly this, in another metaphor, is speaking of the father's disciplinary action upon his children. Remember Hebrews chapter 13? Or I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 12? The author of Hebrews in 12, 7 through 11 says, it is, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? But if you are, not, if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are Ill, illegitimate children and not sons. In other words, the author of Hebrews is saying discipline, or to use Jesus' metaphor here, Pruning is evidence that you actually are one of his children. The father doesn't prune those who are not abiding in the vine. The father doesn't discipline those who are not his children. Do you spank other people's children? Probably not. But the father spanks his own children. Why? The author of Hebrews says, furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather, uh, not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time 
as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. It's painful, right? It's sorrowful. It produces tears. It produces pain. It produces anguish. Yet, to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields, here we are, back to the vineyard language, peaceful fruit of righteousness. This is a big deal, friends, because so often when the Father takes his pruning knife to us, we slap his hand. But yet it's love that motivates that pruning knife to come to us. We kick against it. No. And yet it's motivated and sent by love. James says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And endurance character that God's fatherly pruning of us is for our good yes it is not pleasant it hurts it's painful and I would not want to minimize that for a minute and some of you have been receiving double doses of pruning and I want to tell you on the authority of God's word as painful as it is, and as much as it hurts, it's for your good. The vine dresser knows what's best for every branch in the vine. He knows exactly where they need to be snipped, exactly where they need to be cut. And he takes his pruning knife and he cuts. But he does it because he knows what's best. John Newton, that author of Amazing Grace, he wrote masterful letters. If you ever get a chance to read some of John Newton's letters, they are a treasure trove of gold. He was a pastor, songwriter. He began a letter this way. At length... And without further apology for my silence, I sit down to ask you how you fare. Afflictions, I hear, have been your lot. And if I had not heard so, I should have taken it for granted. For I believe that the Lord loves you. And as many as he loves, he chastens. I think I can say afflictions have been good for you. And I doubt not, but you have found strength according to to your day, so that though you may have been sharply tried, you have not been overpowered. Newton says, I heard you've been going through rough times. You know what? I should have assumed that because I knew God loves you. The psalmist writes in Psalm 119, 71, can you say this? It was good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. It was good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes, that I might learn to walk more obediently to you. Westcott says, everything is removed from the branch which tends to divert the vital power from production of fruit. It is often in the fire of trials, it is often with the painful knife of the pruner that we begin to actually grow. Amy Carmichael, she was a missionary to India. Her ministry involved rescuing temple children from prostitution. 
she saw and experienced much suffering in her life, and she wrote these words. What prodigal waste it appears to be to see scattered on the floor the bright green leaves and the bare stem bleeding in a hundred places from the sharp knife. But with a tried and trusted husbandman, there's not a random stroke in it at all. Nothing cut away which it would not have been a loss to keep, a gain to lose. And then she prayed, rid me, good Lord, of every diverting thing. You see what she's saying there? If you, if you were to look at the floor uh, where the vineyard is at, you would see all these leaves, seemingly good leaves on the ground, and you would scratch your head and wonder and say, that seems to be such a waste. Why'd you chop all that off? It looks like Edward Scissorhand was cutting at that. And she pauses and says, no. No, the good, wise husbandman, the vine dresser knows what he's doing. Friend, it takes the eyes of faith to be able to believe that. Do you really believe that? Do you believe that when your health is ailing? Do you believe that when a friend betrays you? Do you believe that when you've been the recipient of slander? Do you believe that when you get the notice from your supervisor that they're going to be laying people off? Do you believe that the father's kindly taking his pruning knife to you? He cuts us not to kill us, but to cultivate us. He cuts us not to kill us, but to cultivate us. J.C. Ryle again says, By trial he weans them from the world, draws them to Christ, drives them to the Bible and prayer, shows them their own hearts, and makes them humble. This is a process by which he prunes them and makes them more fruitful. Friend, don't despise the process. Humble yourself under, welcome it. Confess, God, I have no idea what you're doing here, but I know I need to be more like Jesus. Teach me, how can I be more like Jesus? How can I produce more fruit in the midst of this trial? Rather than grumbling, complaining, kicking against it. Well, we see that the vine empowers. This is why you should abide. The Father purges those branches that don't bear fruit. This is why you should abide. The Father prunes. You get the loving hand of the Father who prunes when you are abiding. And then, fourthly, the Son purifies those who are abiding. Notice verse 3. Jesus looks to his disciples, he says, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. You are already clean. This isn't the first time that Jesus has used this language in this lengthy teaching section. He used it in John chapter 13. Remember when Jesus starts washing the disciples' feet? He's going around the room scrubbing their dirty smelly feet, and he comes to Peter. Peter, notorious for sticking his foot in his mouth, and Peter says, Lord, may it never happen. I am not going to let you wash my feet. And Jesus shockingly says to him, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. You're cut off, Peter, You have no inheritance with me. You have no promise with me. But then Peter then says, well, if if that's the case, verse 9, the Lord washed not only my feet, but, you know, get the shampoo out, my head, 
scrub underneath my fingernails, get my hands. Lord, give me a shower. But then in verse 10, Jesus said, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. In other words, Jesus said, you've already had a bath. You're already clean. But then he qualifies, but not all of you, because at that point, Judas was still in their midst. And so what does Jesus mean here? What is, what, what is the metaphor here with this foot washing? As I mentioned, when we were in John 13, the, John 13, the foot washing is a metaphor of the purifying work of Jesus that he was going to perform in serving them the next day upon the cross. And when one becomes a Christian, they become purified by the blood of Jesus, by his death and resurrection, but they do need to continue to go back to Jesus, confessing their sin and trusting in his cross work. And so the similar language is used here in John 15 when he says to his disciples, you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. What is the word? The word is the promise, the promise of forgiveness of sins because of what Jesus was going to accomplish the very next morning on the cross. You are clean, Jesus says. So that those who are abiding in the vine, those who are plugged into Jesus, have the benefit of having all their sins paid for on the the cross so that they can stand before Almighty God as clean, not because they are necessary clean in of themselves, but because Jesus has washed them. He has forgiven them of all their sins. They are justified before him. Romans 8 can be their promise to claim there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Friend, there may be some of you sitting here this morning and you're, you're struggling with the reality that there's not much fruit in your life. And, and you may painfully see that. And you may even have many doubts and waverings of faith. Am I even a Christian? If you are a Christian, I tell you under the authority of God's word, you are clean because of the word of Jesus, because of the promise of Jesus. You are forgiven. And if you want to produce more fruit, plug into the vine more sturdily, keep abiding in Jesus, keep feeding upon the reality of his death and resurrection for you, keep going back to him, welcome the pruning hand of the Father as he lops off branches that are taking nourishment from him, that are sucking your love for Jesus away, and you will produce more fruit. So, friend, but if you've never trusted in Jesus, if there's no fruit in your life, we see in verse 6 what awaits is not a purifying fire, but a fire of judgment cast into fire and burned up. Friend, I don't want that to be anybody in this room. And so turn to Christ, turn to him. He is the vine and we are the branches. Let's pray.